This evening we're going to start a series on the life of the prophet Jeremiah. And if you have a copy of the handout and you're prepared to follow my comments, at least as far as we will get, I'm going to proceed on the basis of a brief overview uh, first, look at the book book in survey, and then we'll narrow down to some archaeological observations and some narrative observations, and then we'll begin to look at the first four verses of chapter 1. The book of the prophet Jeremiah is the largest book of the Old Testament, apart from the Psalter. It is the largest book of the Old Testament by a single author. And this largest of Old Testament books records the greatest amount of biographical detail on the career of any prophet of the Old Testament. And this greatest detail of an Old Testament prophet's life lays out before the reader the greatest crisis of the Old Testament, the great crisis of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonian army, together with the raising of the temple of Solomon, so as to leave not one stone upon another, and the deportation, the transplantation, the expatriation of wave upon wave upon wave of Judeans to Babylon. The book of the prophet Jeremiah gives our English language a vocabulary word. The word Jeremiah, a word which indicates a caustic, pessimistic, cataclysmic, philippic, from Demosthenes, the great Greek order, speeches against Philip, Philip of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great, Philippic, sarcastic, sardonic vocabulary and rhetoric. Jeremiah has all of it. The prophet is the subject of some of the world's greatest artwork by some of the world's greatest Artists. Michelangelo's portrayal of Jeremiah on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. A portrait which you have in your handout, portraits which are readily available on the internet. Portrait of a brooding figure, eyes closed, closed in horror against the decimation of his beloved city. Second in your packet is the portrait of Jeremiah by Rembrandt. Eyes also closed in dejection, 
in exhaustion, in frustration. Jeremiah, in Rembrandt's portrayal, leaning dejectedly upon a pile of Jerusalem rubble. The painting tells it all. And then Gustave Doré, a great French photographer of the 19th century, two portraits of Jeremiah, eyes lifted up to heaven in the one lithograph in judgment and the other in the reception of revelation. One scene to the crowds in Jerusalem, the other scene to the solitary scribe Barak as he recounts the word of the Lord through the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. The features of each of these pieces of art are a reflection upon the story of the prophet and the story of Judah and Jerusalem. It is the drama of death. It is the drama of death and destruction and deportation. It is the drama of a prophet's warnings unheeded, a nation with a death wish, a death wish which no amount of raging rhetoric, passionate plangency, tender threnody can alter. Now, those words are also good for your Scrabble game. Plangency refers to a lament and therefore is associated with Jeremiah because of the book of Lamentations. Threnody is actually derived from the Greek word for the book of Lamentations. In the Septuagint, it is called threnoi. And from that Greek word, we get the word threnody, which means a song of lamentation or an elegy of lamentation. So these are uh, vocabulary words which refer to the poignancy of sorrow, grief, and lament. Notice what Jeremiah says. For these things I weep. My eye, my eye runs down with water. Lamentations 1.16. My eye runs down with rivers of water. For the destruction of my people. Lamentations 3.48. My eye shall weep bitterly. My soul shall run down with tears. Because the Lord's flock is carried away to captivity. Jeremiah 13.17. My eyes flow down with tears. Night and day. For the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed. Crushed with a mighty blow. Jeremiah fourteen seventeen. Jeremiah, the branded prophet. Jeremiah, the labeled prophet. Labeled the weeping prophet. 
an appellation which denominated him in literary part, in dramatic part, in prophetic part. And that reflected in the artistic portrayal of Jeremiah, as you have seen from Rembrandt and Michelangelo. Indeed, the heading to the Book of Lamentations in the Septuagint reads, Jeremiah sat down weeping, weeping over Jerusalem. This weeping prophet, this prophet of tears, this prophet whose narrative biography is the most replete, the most complete, the largest book of the prophets with the greatest amount of biographical detail about the prophet's life, this lachrymose prophet is the least known prophet in the church. From the detail of his career recorded in Scripture, he is the best known of the prophets from within the Bible, but outside the Bible, even in the places which Allegedly revere the Bible, Jeremiah remains the least known of the prophets in the church. As one observer has noted, the most accessible prophet from within Scripture is the most hidden prophet to the church. And Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the most open of the prophets, the most open about his life, the most open about his feelings, the most open about his complaints, the most open about his sufferings. But to us, he remains the most obscure prophet. I dare say that you have never heard a series of sermons on the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is the most familiar prophet to his contemporaries, but the most unfamiliar prophet to us and our contemporaries. Well known in his day, as his narrative biography testifies, unknown in our day. How do we account for this neglect of Jeremiah? The size of the book intimidates, that's one explanation, or shall I say one excuse. But the second, perhaps most challenging explanation is that the book is exceedingly complex, exceedingly complex, and therefore it intimidates the student and the preacher because the modern preacher is not really a hard worker. He wants the easy way to Sunday morning. That doesn't make Jeremiah a candidate. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ was thought to be Jeremiah. Jesus of Nazareth was considered to be Jeremiah alive from the dead. Jeremias Redivivus, Matthew 16, 14. Who do people say that I am? His disciples said, some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus Christ 
regarded as the eschatological Jeremiah. The protological Jeremiah is recapitulated in the eschatological Jeremiah. The protological weeping prophet is fulfilled in the eschatological weeping prophet. Jesus, our Savior, is identified with Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. That is an identification which is profound, poignant, plangent, powerful. Powerful to attract you to this life of this Old Testament prophet, this figure of Christ of the former era. This prophet who wept over Jerusalem, even as the Son of God wept over Jerusalem, Luke 19.41. We are dealing here with a marvelous philosophy of revelation, redemptive historical revelation. Revelation in protological and eschatological tandem. Revelation knitting together the redemptive history of the former prophet with the redemptive history of the last prophet. Indeed, a once and for all weeping prophet who is more than a prophet, more than a mere recapitulator, more than Jeremiah, a prophet who is very God of very God. That means God is disclosing himself in his son, Jesus Christ, but also in his prophet, Jeremiah. And grace upon grace, God the son is disclosing himself to the prophet, Jeremiah. This is magnificent, redemptive, historical, recapitulatory, protological, eschatological, prophetic narrative biography. The first weeping prophet and the last weeping prophet mirroring themselves in one another. Now that is sweet, redemptive, historical union. Is it not? Or don't you see it? The disciples did. The interface between the 6th century B.C. prophet and the 1st century A.D. prophet is the rippling narrative of the organic history of redemption. An unfolding drama which encloses antecedent and consequent, precursor and successor, first and last, Jeremiah and Jesus and folds them both in a redemptive historical drama of suffering, rejection, spurned proclamation, betrayal by their own, denunciation, mockery, arrest, imprisonment, scourging, condemnation. Jeremiah is born of humble surroundings, raised in a rural village setting. The story of Jesus interfaces. 
Jeremiah is commissioned by the foreknowledge and predestination, the decree and vocation of Almighty God. The story of Jesus interfaces. Jeremiah's preaching is the thunder and fire of God's judgment and the softness and warmth of God's grace in a new heart. A story of Jesus interfaces. Jeremiah's message about the destruction of the temple earns him the enmity of his listening audience. The story of Jesus interfaces. Jeremiah's own people plot his death, seek to kill him. The story of Jesus interfaces. Jeremiah is arrested, beaten, <clears throat> imprisoned, Bound over to death, the story of Jesus interfaces. For telling the truth, the truth of God, Jeremiah is condemned, outcast, despised, and rejected of men. The story of Jesus interfaces. When Jeremiah preaches his famous temple sermon, which is recorded in chapter 7 of his book, he is banned from the temple, Jeremiah 36, verse 5. When Jeremiah declares that the Lord will bring fire on the land of Judah, his own family, his very own blood brothers plan to kill him, Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12. When Jeremiah prophesies that God will make Jerusalem like Tophet, Pasher, a priest, strikes him, beats him on the face, puts him in stocks overnight. Jeremiah chapter 26. When Jeremiah's scroll containing his prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem is read to King Jehoiakim, the arrogant monarch deliberately slices column from column and feeds them to the flames of his brazier. Chapter 36. When Jeremiah predicted 70 years captivity in Babylon, one Hananiah, a pseudo-prophet, called Jeremiah a liar and humiliated him in the presence of all the people. Jeremiah chapter 28. When Jeremiah proclaimed that Jerusalem would be given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he was cast down into a cistern full of mud, mud into which Jeremiah sunk and would have suffocated to death had he not been rescued by a foreigner, a stranger, an Ethiopian. Chapter 38, outlawed, censored, threatened, pummeled, imprisoned, derided, belittled, degraded, nearly asphyxiated, Jeremiah endures a range of abuses over the life of his more than 40-year career. And in the face of this near constant barrage of hatred and opposition to dislike, rejection, and enmity, the prophet often cracks 
He often shows his temper. He is provoked to retaliate with complaints, with confessions, with commiserations. We are admitted to the soul of this prophet. We are admitted to the soul of the prophet Jeremiah as we are excluded from the souls of every other prophet. The humanization of Old Testament prophecy is here in this book and in this man, in this Jeremiah. This prophet of the Lord pressed down, pressed down into the passion of his God, pressed down into the pathos of his people, pressed down, is Jeremiah, into the pathetic passion of people and prophet. De profundis, out of the depths, out of the soul, up from the heart of this weeping prophet, the complaints, the confessions, le cri de coeur, the cry of the heart. The soul of a man, a prophet of the Lord, whose inner person, whose down deep psyche is displayed to his readers to those with hearts and souls to understand, to feel the depths of the anguish, the depths of the anguish which Jeremiah the prophet feels. Here is religious feeling, religious affection, to steal Jonathan Edwards' phrase. Here is the soul before God. Here is the soul in God. Here is the soul of a sinner at the brink of the last judgment on his own world. It's all going up in smoke and death. And so the poignant confessions are a mirror of ambivalence, attention or erstwhile contradiction between consent and complaint, between praise and protest, between benediction and malediction. It is the prophet's narrative, narrative of the soul of the prophet, the soul of the prophet narrating his collision, his collision with God the sovereign, collision with his own self, collision with this pitiful narrative, the collision of the narrative of a soul between God and self. God and self, a soul in a crisis of catharsis and death. He feels it. He experiences it. He dramatizes it. The narrative of the book of Jeremiah is the drama of interface between prophet and people, even as it is interface between prophet and God. The narrative ripples of Jeremiah in his own history and the history of Judah converge, intersect, 
overlap, successive narrative ripples, layers upon layers of narrative of a nation as well as a prophet. And the narrative ripples of Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, and the Lord, the giver of prophecy, those ripples converge, intersect, overlap. The history of Jeremiah dramatically carries along the story of the man as it interfaces with the ripple effects of the story of the nation, the nation of Judah, and the man the prophet of Judah, mirror images. And the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord which the prophet expires is the Lord's word which he inspires. The word of the Lord in Jeremiah interfaces with Jeremiah in the Lord of the word. Those ripples are the revelatory ripples of a divine human drama. God, the Lord, disclosing himself to his servant, his servant disclosing himself to the Lord God. The mirror returns. The mirror returns. You discover we are reading a prophetic narrative biography in which the story of the prophet and the nation people is mirrored. Such is the redemptive historical mirror. And we further discover that we are reading a prophetic narrative biography in which the story of the prophet and the Lord God is mirrored. Such is the incarnational mirror. So profound is the interrelationship between Jeremiah and his Lord that the word of the Lord indwells him, even as he dwells within the Lord of the word. Mirror ripples as mirror interfaces in narrative drama. This prophetic narrative biography overflows with characters, dramatic, heroic, tragic, pathetic characters. Kings, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, prophets, Uriah, Hananiah, Barak, the scribe, Ebon-Melech, the Ethiopian, Pasher, the priest, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, and a supporting cast of thousands. It would make a great Hollywood movie. Narrative characterization literally abounds in this book. It is brimful of prophetic symbolic actions as well as interesting dramatic characters. Prophetic, symbolic actions. We have Jeremiah's linen girdle in chapter 13. The potter's vessel of chapters 18 and 19. 
the yoke that he wears upon his neck in chapter 27, the field he buys in Anathoth in chapter 32, Anathoth, his hometown, and the marriage, the marriage he is forbidden to pursue in chapter 16. Symbols, prophetic, symbolic narrative, symbols of the impending acts of God in the symbolic acts of the prophet. There's that divine human interface once again. Symbolic act is as divine revelatory. And this prophetic narrative biography ripples over and over with Jeremiah's confessions, or more trenchantly, his complaints. Chapter 11, verses 18 to 23, 12, verses 1 to 6, 15, verses 10 to 12 and 15 to 21, 17, verses 14 to 18. 18 verses 18 through 23, and chapter 20 verses 7 through 13 and 14 through 18. Scholars who prefer the term confessions of Jeremiah compare Jeremiah's expostulation with Augustine's famous book of that title. In the case of the Old Testament prophet and the North African church father, We have the soul laid bare. Does anyone know who has read the opening passages of Augustine's Confessions? The soul laid bare, open for all to see, and a soul plumbing the depths, the depths of human feeling and sensitivity. We read Jeremiah and Augustine, and they touch our soul if we have a soul that can be touched. They touched our inner core of feeling, our inner core of fallenness and shame, our inner core of delight and adoration in our Lord and Savior. With Jeremiah, we set out on a journey inward, a journey inward to the narrative of the soul, and the soul's narrative journey into the presence of God, the presence of God and the tender union of his everlasting love. For with everlasting love, I have loved you, says the Lord to Jeremiah. His mirror image. Before we turn to a detailed study of the first four verses, a word about recent archaeological material germane to the book of Jeremiah and some comments on the available commentaries on the book of the prophet Jeremiah. If you'll turn in your handout to the picture of the two clay bulle. I will begin by commenting on the two images you have 
and noting as a background remark that the name Jeremiah occurs in numerous bullae which have been discovered in Palestine as a result of the archaeological spade and sifting box. These little bullae are clay seal impressions. They're no bigger than a thumbnail, that is the large thumbnail. And the one on the top of the page that you have before you was discovered in 2005, and the one underneath it was discovered in 1982. Now, the significance of these bullae is that the writing which is on them, which is actually uh, ancient Hebrew, the writing that is on them contains the names of persons mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. The bullae have been discovered in the destruction layer of Jerusalem, that is, the destruction layer of the burning of the city by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. We'll begin with the one at the top of the page, since that's the order that you have them before you, the one discovered in 2005. It was discovered in the destruction layer of Jerusalem by a woman whom we mentioned before, Eilat Matzar. granddaughter of Benjamin Matar, great Israeli archaeologist of the 20th century, and she is continuing his work. She is the one who has allegedly discovered the foundation stones of the Palace of David and the Wall of Nehemiah. At any rate, in 2005, she discovered this bullet, which you see on the top of the page, a bullet which reads when you translate it when you translate it belonging to Yahukal Ben Shalamayahu Ben Shovi, which means in translation Jehukal, the son of Shalamiah. And you will find that expression in Jeremiah thirty seven three and once again in Jeremiah thirty eight one. In other words, a bullet with the very name of a character in the book of Jeremiah has been discovered in the 586 B.C. destruction layer of Jerusalem, confirming or authenticating the name and the patrimony of that name in the prophet's work. Now, the other bullet was discovered in 1982, when 51 of these little clay seal impressions were discovered in the burn layer of the destruction of Jerusalem. And this one contains the name Gemariahu, son of Shaphan. That's the name Gemariah, son of Shaphan, that you find in Jeremiah 36, 10, 11, 12, and 25. Gemariah, who incidentally was a person who heard the scroll of Jeremiah read before Jehoiakim and appealed to Jehoiakim and others not to harm Jeremiah as a result and not to destroy the scroll. So uh, Gemariah, son of Shaphan, is authenticated or confirmed in this bullet. His name appears in an archaeological treasure trove. Now, the last of the little bullet, which is not depicted or uh, pictured there, is one which is discovered again by Eilat Mazar in 2008. 
and it uh, contains the name Jukal or Jukal. I'm sorry, it contains the name uh, uh, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher. Gedaliah, the son of Pasher. And that is another name which occurs in the text of the prophet Jeremiah, so that we have uh, three authenticated bulle with names, and in fact, patrimonies, that is, son of, uh, names uh, of individuals that appear explicitly in the text of the prophet Jeremiah and these discoveries within the last 30 years. How much more does the earth contain <laughs> that will display the confirmation of the text of the word of God in marvelous fashion? All right, well, these discoveries were quite spectacular when they first hit the uh, newswires because, of course, they were a direct confirmation of these uh, names as they are given uh, in the text of the prophet's work. Now, I want to make some comments about commentaries, which you will find on that same page, second page of the more detailed uh, handout. And I do this for the sake of addressing some of the issues which are related to writing critical commentaries or scholarly commentaries. And I'll begin at the bottom of the page where you have uh, R.K. Harrison's Tyndall commentary on the book of Jeremiah, first published in 1973, reprinted uh, two years ago, 2009. It is a conservative or evangelical commentary which believes in the historicity and reliability of the text of the book of Jeremiah. It is a short commentary. It's uh, almost 200 pages, but they're small pages, and it would be ideal for a layperson if you are interested in having a commentary that's easy to use and uh, and not uh, extremely long and detailed. Uh, It is written with a lay audience in mind. Now, working up from the bottom of the page, J.A. Thompson, who was a, a late, he's dead now, he was a, a Australian evangelical Old Testament scholar, uh, wrote uh, in 1980 what is still the conservative standard commentary on the book of Jeremiah in the New International Old Testament commentary series by Erdman's Publishing House, though Erdman's is certainly not as conservative anymore as it was in 1980. Even in 1980, it was slipping away fast. But nonetheless, Thompson himself was a conservative evangelical. And though this uh, work is now somewhat dated, uh, nonetheless, it is a good, solid work uh, on the book of Jeremiah. It is a more detailed commentary, much longer, uh, almost 500 pages long. But nonetheless, a good, solid piece of conservative uh, Bible-believing exposition. Now, I'm going to skip to the top of the list and look at William Holliday in the Hermeneus series, a two-volume uh, set which is uh, highly regarded in the academic world, the scholarly world. Uh, Holliday does believe that much of the book of Jeremiah is rooted in historical events from the period of the 6th and the 7th and 6th century BC, that is, from the time in which Jeremiah lived. Not all commentators believe that, as we'll see in a moment, but Holliday does. However, Holliday is a practitioner of, uh, shall we say, form criticism. 
That is, he looks at the text and attempts to reconstruct it on the basis of literary forms. It is, in my opinion, a counsel of despair, but nonetheless, it was one of the dominant approaches to studying the Old Testament in the mid to late 20th century and has faded now since the turn of the millennium. Next on that list is a commentary by Robert Carroll in the old Westminster, old Westminster John Knox, which is the liberal PCUSA publishing house, the Westminster John Knox Old Testament Library Series. This volume has been replaced just last year by Leslie Allen, an Old Testament professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, but it is not, even though he's a professor at Fuller, is not a conservative commentary. So even though this commentary has been replaced in the Old Testament Library Series by a more recent version, it is because this commentary was too radical and Allen is less radical, but he's no more conservative, even though he's a Fuller prof. Carroll's commentary is indeed extremely radical because he argues that virtually none of the book of Jeremiah is historical. It is complete reconstruction from the post-exilic age. Now that is consistent with any Old Testament scholar who holds to what's called the Deuteronomic reconstruction of the Old Testament, namely all of the Deuteronomy material in the Old Testament comes from after the exile. Moses didn't write Deuteronomy. None of that originates from Deuteronomy. And consequently, wherever you see those themes in the Old Testament, they're all read back over the past. They're all imported. They're all fabricated. So the book of Jeremiah, according to Robert Carroll, is a fabrication. Jeremiah has nothing to do with it. That's the kind of thing you deal with when you deal with critical <clears throat> scholars and critical commentaries. You, just, you have to take that in, uh, <clears throat> in pace and uh, work around it or work uh, beside it or get rid of it or whatever, but it's the kind of challenge that is before you if you're going to understand where the discussion is in <clears throat> the academic and scholarly world. Now, the next one there <clears throat> is by William McCain in the ICC, the International Critical Commentary Series, a two-volume uh, minute analysis of lexicography, vocabulary, grammar, etc. It is a waste of time. The whole ICC series, which was uh, originally edited by Charles Augustus Briggs, the nemesis of the PCUSA in the 19th century, and the one whom uh, Gerhardus Voss was called to Princeton to answer in part, uh, <clears throat> Charles Augustus Briggs launched this series. It was actually never finished by the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. So somewhere around 1980, they decided to revive it. They should have let it die. It was moribund at that time. It should never have been resurrected. McCain is an attempt to resurrect it and to complete the unfinished work on Jeremiah from the old series, and it is a miserable piece of boredom to be ignored. But the last, Jack Lundbom in the Anchor Bible, three volumes, 2,200 pages, is a masterpiece. Yes, he is a liberal, but there is no one who has dug deeper mind more and done more serious work on the text from the standpoint of believing in the historicity of the book. Now, that doesn't mean that he's a squeaky clean liberal. He's not a conservative or an evangelical for that matter. But nonetheless, he is a scholar. And he has an appreciation for the rhetorical language, the literary drama of the text, and also the historical reliability of the historical material in the text. And in 2,200 pages, 
He exhausts the text. (laughs) But he does so in a stimulating way, not in a boring way like McCain. And therefore, this is the commentary, regardless of its theological uh, orientation. Now, of course, if you can't handle a theological liberal commentary, then stay away from it. Stick with a little shorthand of R.K. Harrison. It's safe. But if you want to move your brain into a far more challenging dimension and mix it up with a liberal who knows his Hebrew and who also understands rhetoric, then Lundboom is the guy to lock horns with. And there I leave the discussion of commentaries, and you get a break for five minutes. Do you have any questions before we break? I realize that in this audience, most of you wouldn't be interested in anything other than R.K. Harrison because it's short and sweet, and that's fine. Scott. Top one is 2005, and the bottom one is 1982. No. That's no. when they were discovered. When they were discovered. How do they know the dates? Of burn layer. It's the burn, burn layer of 586 B.C. Okay. That, that has been identified ever since the Six Days War, ever since the Jews uh, took back the West Bank. They've known that they found the, bear, the char layer. They've actually got arrowheads, Babylonian arrowheads in that char layer and the, for the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Robert? Yeah, what was those boules used for? Yeah. yeah, they're seal impressions to seal documents. You know, like you use a wax seal? Okay, yeah. Okay? It's the same principle, only they didn't have wax. They used clay. And so they made them out of clay, and they either fired them, or they just simply got high, got hard over a period of time. Okay. So, so do those discoveries cause some of these critical scholars to change their mind? No. It, no archaeological discovery ever changes the mind of a critic. Because a critic doesn't believe that the archaeological material makes any difference. He reconstructed the text on his own philosophy, so it doesn't doesn't bother him a bit. Five minutes. All right. Now we need to be on the same page with page one of the life of Jeremiah Handout. And your Bible opened to the first chapter. And having the first four verses available. And I noticed so many new Bibles in your hands when you came in tonight. All of you took my encouragement seriously and went out and bought yourself an NASB for Christmas, didn't you? Don't have to answer that. All right, now... We want to begin with the superscription. Why do we call a superscription a superscription, Kay? Because it's the first thing. It's on the top. It's on the top? It tells it's the heading. It's the heading? I like all of those things. That's not right. But but it's not right. It's not the nail on the head. Oh, okay. Superscripto. First. It is first. What superscripto mean? What super mean? It's over. Over or above. Scripto. Writing. The writing. The writing which is over and above what writing? Right above. 
The writing of the book. The writing of the book, or the prophetic text. And the prophetic text begins where? After the scripture. No. Where does it begin? Where does where does Jeremiah start talking? Verse four. Verse three. Verse. Oh, four. Verse five. <clears throat> verse five. That's where he actually begins to declare the prophecy. All right. So the writing which is above his own prophetic text or his prophetic revelation or what he is speaking of is the superscription. Now, this is a heading, okay? It is first in the book. All of those uh, explanations which you gave are accurate, but it's written above as a kind of introduction to, okay? Most of the prophetic books have this. Jeremiah's is quite remarkable, as I hope we shall see. Now, on your outline, I have suggested patterns of symmetry in this superscription. So I'd like you to scan through those first four verses and see if you come up with some symmetrical patterns. And as you get them, just go ahead and blurt them out. Tell me what you find. You know what symmetry is now. You've had it, you mean you've been sitting in front of me long enough that you know what to look for. So let's look for it here. Well, Pardon? In verses 1 and 4, there's the word, word. There's the word, word. Okay, notice that in verse 1 it is plural, but in verse 4 it is not plural. However, in verse 4, do you also see it in a singular anywhere else, are you? Since you're on the right track, you're sniffing at the right... I see it in verse 2. Verse 2, very good, Cheryl. So, in verse 2 and verse 4, we have a symmetrical word, the Lord, word of the Lord came, don't we? The word of the Lord came. Okay? Verses 2 and 4. So there's a symmetry there. Any other symmetries that you see? All right. Notice the names of the kings. We have three names of kings there. X, the son of Y, king of Judah. Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Notice the symmetry there. Three times we have that symmetrical parallel. Any other symmetry that you see or any other duplications that you see? Notice verses 2 and 3. The phrase, in the days of. In the days of. Also parallel. Verse 3, we have a repeated phrase. The word until appears twice. Until the end of the 11th year, until the exile of Jerusalem. There's a duplication or symmetry there. And finally, when you notice the use of the years, 13th, verse 2, 13th year of. So the word year plus a possessive. 
Year of. Year plus possessive. Same thing occurs in verse 3. 11th year. Year plus possessive. Year of. All right, now, we've seen a number of symmetrical duplications in this first, in this superscription, which means that this is a tightly constructed rhetorical unit. This is not merely incidental detail. Something is going on here. And these patterns are clues to the significance of what this superscription is doing. Which means that we need to think about what is going on here. Because if these symmetries are present, then Jeremiah has very carefully crafted this. These patterns are here in order to suggest something. Now we need to ask the question, what is he suggesting? All right, so let's look at how these four verses are set off from one another. Do you see any kind of framing device in these four in these four verses? Back to you, Art. Well, I didn't get it right last time, so um, word and word. <laughs> you were on the right track. You were sniffing the right track. Remember I said that you were sniffing the right track, and what did I point out? You said two and four. Two and four. What do you see in two and four? Do you see any framing device in two and four? Word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. It's exactly the same. So what we have in two and four is a bracketing device. The word of the Lord. In fact, the word of the Lord came. All right, now, let's think about that. What's in front of the bracketing device? Obviously, what verse? Christina? Verse 1. Verse 1. Boy, that was tough, wasn't it? Okay, what's in front of the bracketing device is verse 1. What's bracketed by the bracketing device? Verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3. So the bracketing device, the word of the Lord came, concludes or comes at the end of whatever's going on in verse 1. And it inaugurates or begins whatever is going on in verses 2 and 3. And then it's repeated in verse 4 because it's doing what? The same thing it did in verse where it first appeared in verse 2. It's an end and a beginning phrase. It's an end and a beginning delimiter. It's an end and beginning marker. It ends whatever's going on in verses 2 and 3 and begins whatever's going to go on in verse 5 and following. In other words, this phrase, the word of the Lord came, is a bracketing transition device. That means that we have two units. We have a unit here in verse 1. And we have a unit here in verses 2 and 3. And so now we want to ask, 
What are these units? He's obviously set them apart. He's delimited them. He's marked them out. He's even noted them by a transition device. What's going on in verse 1? And what's going on in verses 2 and 3? What kind of information do we have in verse 1, Scott? Uh, we have the information about the, uh, um, the prophet himself. So we have what kind of information? Biographical. What other kind of information would you call it? That's good. What other? Uh, historical biographical. No, not historical. Okay. You don't have any dates in this one, do you? Do you have any dates in verses 2 and 3? Do you have any dates in verses 2 and 3? Uh, do we have? Yes. Yeah, you sure do have dates in 2 and 3. You don't have any dates in verse 1, so it's not historical material per se, right? Okay, so what kind of material is it? It's personal. It's your personal information. All right, so what we have in verse 1 is personal data <coughs> about the prophet Jeremiah. Personal biographical data. What do we have in verses 2 and 3? Scott? Historical data. Historical data, because we've got dates. We've even got dates attached to kings, don't we? And since we can date those kings, look at the chart up above at the top of your outline. You've got the dates of these kings. We've got historically datable information in verses 2 and 3. What has the prophet done in his superscription? He's distinguished his own personal information from the historical context of his era. But he's given it in... Patterns of symmetry. And the symmetry brackets it, sets it off. In other words, he delimits his personal data with this word of the Lord came, and he circumscribes the historical data by the same repeated phrase, word of the Lord came. Now let's go back to, yes, Robert? It seems to me he's also emphasizing uh, Judah as the focal point of this prophecy. Good. As we pointed out, when the X plus Y sons of kings of Judah, they're all named kings of Judah. That's correct. All right, now let's go back to Art's favorite near miss, namely the word words, plural, in verse 1. The broader paradigm of the book of Jeremiah contains four occurrences of this phrase, words of Jeremiah, and only four. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 1. The Hebrew is read from right to left, Divrei Yirmayahu. That's how you pronounce that. Okay, It means in English, words of Jeremiah. I put the Hebrew in there so that you notice that it is exactly the same wherever it occurs. All right, now keeping your finger in chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to turn to chapter 51, verse 64. Jeremiah 51, verse 64. And what do you find there? 
Bar are the words of Jeremiah. And the Hebrew is? From your sheet, the Hebrew is? Exactly the same. Is it not? All right, so in one one. We have this fray, words of Jeremiah. In 51-64, we have thus far the words of Jeremiah. In fact, the last words in that 64th verse are these, this phrase, this Hebrew phrase, words of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah are concluded. Chapter 52 is not the words of Jeremiah. We'll comment on that in a minute. Okay? Well, from 1-1 to 51-64, we have the same phrase... That brackets the whole book. What do we call this? An inclusio. That's exactly right. It's an inclusio. He includes between the borders or the bookends of 1 1 to 51 64 the contents of his entire prophetic corpus. These are the words the Lord that came to the prophet Jeremiah. From 1-1 to 51-64, the words of the Lord to the prophet. Chapter 52, not the words of the Lord to the prophet. Now, there are two other places where this phrase occurs. Turn back to chapter 26, verse 20. Actually, before you do that, go back to 5164, okay? While we've got our fingers there, let's do one more thing. All right, let's ask the question in 5164, what era are we in? Look up at verse 59. What era are we in at the end of the book? Who's the king, Margie? Have you got it yet? Okay. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have had you lose your place. 5164. Look up at verse 59. Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the king. So at the end of the book, we are in the era of King Zedekiah. Okay. Now, you can turn back to 2620. But where are we in 1-1? At the beginning of the book, what era are we in? Whose era are we in? Yes, good, Robert. The era of Josiah, King Josiah, King of Judah. All right? Now, in 2620, once again, this phrase, the words of Jeremiah, occurs. This is an interesting place. Because they are the words of Uriah, which are as the words of Jeremiah. I'll come back to that in a moment. What era are we in in 2620? Look at verse 21. We are in the era of King Jehoiakim. Good. One more place where this phrase occurs. Chapter 36, verse 10. Chapter 36, verse 10.
And once again, I'm going to ask you, as you look at 3610, which is the record of Barak reading the words of Jeremiah, what era are we in? Whose era are we in? Verse 9. Cheryl? Jehoiakim. Once again, Jehoiakim. You're of King Jehoiakim. All right, now notice what we've written on the board. <clears throat> the first chapter begins in the era of Josiah. The last chapter, which contains the end, not the last chapter, the last chapter of Jeremiah's words, contains words from the era of Zedekiah. And the only other place that this phrase, words of Jeremiah, occurs <clears throat> is in these two parallel portions which occur during the era of Jehoiakim. Now, no, go back. Now, go back to chapter one and look at verses two and three. And who are the kings named in verses two and three? Both Ammon and Jehoiakim. We start with Josiah, then we go to Jehoiakim, then we go to Zedekiah. Precisely the three kings who are in the superscription are the three kings in which we have this phrase, the words of Jeremiah came. The corresponding drama of the prophetic words of Jeremiah come in the main. In the era of King Hezekiah, the word of the Lord came to him. In the era of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to him. And in the era of King Zedekiah, the word of the Lord came to him. Now, look at the top of your sheet, the first handout sheet. What's missing? There are two kings missing, aren't there? What are their names? Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. Why are they missing? Interesting question, isn't it? Interesting question, isn't it? Notice that they only reign three months. What else is peculiar about Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim? They are both dethroned and carried away captive from Jerusalem. Jehoahaz, captured by Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, on his return from Carchemish after the battle of Megiddo in 609 and taken down to Egypt where he dies. Jehoiakim, captured by Nebuchadnezzar in the second siege of Jerusalem in 597. Jehoiakim and his mother and his entourage goes out to, to so to speak, buy off Nebuchadnezzar and he is carried away captive to Babylon, where he is imprisoned until the reign of evil Merodach. And then he is let out of jail, which is the end of the story of the book of Jeremiah in chapter 52, as it is the end of Second Kings chapter 25. But they are not in the superscription of the prophet's work. Because the word of the Lord does not come in bulk to Jeremiah during their reigns. <clears throat> the reigns are too short. 
They are shamed by exile and deportation. They do not endure long enough. The focus, then, of Jeremiah's prophecy is upon these three major royal figures, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And that's the reason that this repeated phrase, the words of Jeremiah, occurs peculiarly and uniquely in these three eras and in these sections of the book. Any questions about any of that? All right, now, Scott? Just a question that arises from this. If you want to put it off till later, that's fine. But in chapter 51, 59, it says this word that comes to uh, Jeremiah is in the uh, fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah, whereas the beginning of the book says that these words come to him until the end of the 11th year. Stick with me. Stick with me. Next page of your outline. Now, this is in a way a kind of macro structure, and yet is a macro structure based on that Hebrew phrase, the words of Jeremiah. <clears throat> There's another macro structure, which is based upon the superscription and <clears throat> the conclusion of the book. Notice in verse 1, again, the phrase, the words of Jeremiah. In verse 51, 64, once again, the words of Jeremiah. We've seen that already. But then a phrase in verse 3, which is parallel to what's going on in the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah. What is that phrase? Christina, you've got a look of all-knowing. Exile, exactly, exile. Notice that verse 3 takes the story to the exile of the Judeans, the exile of the Jews. And the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah is describing the exile and deportation of the Jews. In fact... In that 52nd chapter, the very same word for exile, which is used in chapter 1, verse 3, the very same Hebrew word and its cognates is used four times in that 52nd chapter, in verse 27, verse 28, verse 30, and verse 31. Now, do you see the symmetry again? Remember... The writer of this book is dealing with symmetrical patterns. In 1.1, we have the words of Jeremiah. In 1.3, we have this exile, the Babylon. In 51.64, we have the words of Jeremiah. And in 52, we have the exile again. Look at it. Exactly symmetrical. Exactly symmetrical. 
where he begins and ends the words of the prophecy. Then he brings that prophecy in terms of his, in terms of the superscription towards its denouement, mainly exile. And then he attaches chapter 52, which deals with the exile. I'm not going to answer the question whether Jeremiah himself is the attacher to the, of chapter 52. I think it's irrelevant to the discussion. But here is the point. It rounds out the symmetry of the book. It rounds out the, the harmony of the prophecy. The prophecy is unto the destruction and exile of Jerusalem and acts exactly what chapter 52 tells you. The book is unfinished without the 52nd chapter. The book ends in medias race without the 52nd chapter. Now, chapter 52 of Jeremiah is almost exactly the same as 2 Kings 24, 18 through 25, 21. There are two differences. First of all, in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 25, verses 22 to 26, there is the record of the assassination of Gedaliah. Gedaliah who is the governor appointed in Jerusalem after the Jews are carried away. He's appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He is assassinated. Now, that story does not occur in Jeremiah 52. What's going on here? He left out part of the Bible. No, he didn't leave it out. He already had recorded the assassination of Gedaliah. Jeremiah records the assassination of Gedaliah in chapter 41 of Jeremiah, verses 1 to 3. He didn't need to repeat it, so he left it out. That is, the person that added chapter 52 left it out. wasn't necessary. And yet, he still added something that 2 Kings doesn't have. In Jeremiah 52, verses 28 to 30, he gives a list of the number of deportees that does not occur in the Second Kings material. So there's a balance then between Jeremiah 52 and Second Kings 24, 18 to 25, 21. You get somewhat like the Synoptic Gospels. You get a little more information out of one over, over against the other. All right, now why am I taking an agnostic position on the authorship of chapter 52? Because I can't prove that Jeremiah wrote it. I can't prove he didn't. Because it's similar to the end of Kings. It's possible that somebody else added it or that Jeremiah authorized somebody else to add it to it in order to balance the work. The symmetry remains and the inspiration remains. I'm not denying the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Jeremiah 52. But this paradigm which I've just laid out allows you to see that the book moves from its superscription to a parallel symmetrical conclusion. Superscription inception, words of Jeremiah. Superscription conclusion, words of Jeremiah. Superscription inception, the exile motif. Superscription conclusion, the exile motif again. Perfectly balanced. Question art. Yeah, you mentioned in chapter 52, it's not known who wrote it, and it's not important, you said. Is the same statement true of chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? That, that is true, although I'm a little more persuaded that Jeremiah probably wrote it. I think that he stereotyped it. I think he composed it as a kind of overview of what he's going to do throughout the work. 
However, <clears throat> there are many who think that Barak wrote it, the scribe, because Barak copies down Jeremiah's prophecies. And so they think he added it. I'm not averse to that. Okay, I'm not averse to Barak being the author of chapter 52. But we stop there. Not the apocryphal book of Barak. Garbage. Nonsense. Ridiculous. As you know, there is an apocryphal book of Barak. Roman Catholics regard it as inspired scripture. Protestants do not. All right. Now, that brings us to the next vexed question. (laughs) The interpretation of the 13th year in verse 2. We're back to the superscription, chapter 1, verse 2. The 13th year of Josiah, king of Judah. Right, now you look at your chart on the first page of your handout. You can figure out what the 13th year of Josiah is. Marge, what's the 13th year of Josiah? You can't do it that fast. I don't remember my pages. 627 or 626. Okay, so 627 slash 26 would be the 13th year of Josiah. Now, some scholars... And William Holliday, whom I mentioned in his commentary earlier, his Hermeneus series commentary. William Holliday is the most scholarly defense of this. Some scholars argue that that is the date of Jeremiah's birth. That's when he was born. What do you think that 13th year means, Ben? As you read that verse, do you think that means Jeremiah's birthday? Very good. You assumed that it was when he started prophesying. That's when the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of Josiah, 626, 27, however old he may have been, right? But not his birthday, not the day he was born. Okay? How did you read it, Terry? Or you didn't think about it? No, I would agree. You would agree with Ben. You're in good company. What about you, Loretta? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the straightforward reading when you when you come to that verse, the thirteenth year of Josiah, you would say, well, this is when the word of the Lord came to him, because look at the frame, look at the bracket, verse two and verse four, the word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord came two times. In fact, the thirteenth year is bracketed between the word of the Lord, QED. Even dumb Denison can get that. How come Holiday, who's got the PhD, can't get it? He's grinding his agenda. That's what he's doing. (laughs) Well, my point is, Holiday doesn't look at the structure of the superscription. When you look at the structure of the superscription and these parallel bracketing frames, I think you solve this question. And therefore, it's a non sequitur. He's not talking about his birthday. He's talking about the day when the word of the Lord came to him. In fact, he even frames it in such a way to double dog tell you that's what it is. Remember, when a Semite says things twice in the same way, 
He's drawing double underline marks, double staccato exclamation points. He's putting it in bold italics. And he's saying to you, scholars and non-scholars alike, come on, dummies, listen up. Do you get it? This is when God's word came to this great prophet. All right, so I think my observations then about the structure of this superscription solve that suggestion that this verse is talking about the birth of Jeremiah. No, it is talking about the time that the word of the Lord came to him in 627-626 B.C. Now, notice one other thing that confirms this. The 13th year of Josiah is the inauguration of the word of the Lord coming to him. It's the beginning of the word of the Lord coming to him. And the 13th year, rather the 11th year of Zedekiah, which is mentioned in verse 3, is the conclusion of the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah, even as we saw in Jeremiah 51, 64. So, once again, internally, we have this framing bracket of when the word of the Lord began to come to him and when the Lord of the word of the Lord ceased to come to him. Did the word of the Lord come to an infant emerging from his mother's womb at his mother's breast? Saying, Yaga, Dada, Gaga, or however you say that in Hebrew? I think not. I think not. Now, when we get to the call of Jeremiah in verses 5 and following, then we'll deal with the issue of the word youth, which appears in that passage. How old was he when the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of Josiah? In 626-627, how old was Jeremiah if he wasn't just then born? Is he 33 years old like Jesus was? Is he 30 years old like Jesus was? Is that what youth means? Well, tune in next week. Well, I'll probably won't get to it next week. But you have to come back <laughs> to get the answer to that one. All right. So we set aside this suggestion, scholarly though it is, we set aside this suggestion that the 13th year refers to the birth of Jeremiah and we acknowledge that it's referring to <clears throat> sometime in Jeremiah's career as a youth when God first began to speak to him. And there we will leave it <clears throat> for this evening and we'll pick up with this next week <clears throat> at verse 3. So please bring your handout back with you uh, next time. I will have uh, some extras and we will go on uh, into the next section, Lord willing. But we will meet uh, next Thursday night at 7.30 to continue with Jeremiah 1, verse 3. Shall we bow in prayer as we close? Our Father, we are in the presence of one with whom you dealt most graciously and most magnificently. For in a very real way, he is in truth a mirror of your own son. And so, O oh Lord, we pray that you will give us hearts to understand, minds to believe, and eyes of faith to see. 
that from this weeping prophet of the 6th century B.C., we come to the eschatological weeping prophet of the 1st century A.D. And in that, the fullness of times has come to us. And the book of Jeremiah is alive in a way it never could have been had Jesus not come. Jesus, Jeremiah's Lord, Jesus, Jeremiah's Savior, Jesus, Jeremiah's Mirror. Help us then to see and to believe in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.